electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. I'm Scott Wapner, and you're listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast, the most profitable hour of the trading day. We record this live weekdays at 12 Eastern. Listen in. All right, Carl, thank you very much. Welcome to the Halftime Report. I'm Scott Wapner. We do begin with breaking news this hour. The Fed chairman set to testify before Congress any moment now. We'll take you to that virtual hearing once Jay Powell begins his opening statement. The chairman will say the economy is still a ways off from achieving the committee's goal, adding that inflation is likely to remain elevated for months before moderating. Our senior economics reporter, Steve Leisman, with me today, along with three of my investment committee members, Stephanie Link, Carrie Firestone, Joe Terranova. It's good to see everybody. We're going to take you to the hearing as soon as it does begin. But Steve Leisman, I think the words that maybe best describe the Fed chair today, staying the course. Yeah, for sure. He's looking the uh, inflation numbers right in the eye, uh, and, and he's not blinking, really, Scott. Uh, I didn't hear anything in his testimony that said he was planning to accelerate uh, the uh, asset purchases or, or the uh, winding down of asset purchases or, indeed, uh, raising funds rate any sooner than expected. And when I look at where the market's priced, uh, you know, he kind of has the market with him, Scott. He's got stocks with him, and he certainly has bonds with him. You know, the 10-year, what is it now, 136, 37 uh, it doesn't be it's not screaming inflation concerns. Uh, the two year at 24 also not screaming inflation concerns right now, even though the numbers have been hotter than expected. Uh, Powell is sticking to his guns that he expects inflation to moderate and they still have a long way to go when it comes to the labor market. It's a, it's a delicate balance, though. Right, Steve? I mean, he acknowledges front and center inflation's hot. It's going to remain hot for, for some time before he thinks it will moderate. But the employment market, which you know how keenly focused uh, he is on it, is not, year, is not yet where they need it to be. It's not. And, and there, is, there are substantial questions, Scott, as whether or not it can actually come back to where it was before. We've had this surge in productivity that's gone along with the pandemic and businesses figuring out new ways to do things. Those jobs, a bunch of those jobs that were lost may not come back, may not be needed anymore. That's one aspect of it. But right now, what Powell says in his testimony is that the 5.9 percent unemployment rate understates the shortfalls and the challenges in the labor market. He thinks it's quite a bit higher and that there's longer to go. And they are squarely focused, just as you said, on the jobs numbers. You know, Steve, if, if he's willing to deal with the fact that inflation's going to run hot for, for months, for several months, then you also have to believe that there's very little out there that could get him or the committee to, to change its mind on where policy's going in the near future. Uh, it's good you bring that up, Scott, because there was one sentence in the testimony that was something of an out in which he said that if the um, uh, inflation, the path of inflation is materially and persistently above 
what the uh, Federal Reserve expects and is consistent with their goals, then they may change policy. So he has this very high bar. Actually, there's two bars to it, the materially and the persistently part, uh, that if that happens, and I don't know what that means, Scott, you and I can sit here with your investment committee and start to game out what materially and persistently above for inflation means. But you can imagine if we keep getting 5% plus prints over the next several months and into the fall that the Fed may rethink its policy. Yeah, but that's the point, though, right? Um, Several months, right? We're not going to know whether materially or persistently happen for a number of months. That is 100% correct. Uh, I mean, (laughs) on the one hand, you sort of feel like the chairman's being a little stubborn here, Uh, especially you've got guys like Larry Fink (laughs) on in the morning and uh, uh, Steve Mnuchin on also saying the Fed is being a little cavalier when it comes to inflation. On the other hand, you kind of admire his persistence on this, that he has uh, really uh, taken it on the chin. And I think, Scott, what we're going to listen for in this meeting is whether or not he starts to take it on the chin politically. Remember, Powell has enjoyed really strong support, bipartisan support throughout this pandemic for what the Fed has done. We'll see now if these high inflation numbers begin to erode some of that political support and whether that begins to move members of the committee and the chairman himself. Yeah, and, and Joe Terranova, um, the market thus far, giving the Fed chair the benefit of the doubt, right? Well, that's because it's the Powell market. And the Powell market wants to trade up towards quality. The Powell market wants to be where uh, it's able to have mega cap technology and that sustainable earnings growth. But, Scott, I agree with what Steve said. And I think the chairman is in a difficult position as he looks to be reappointed because the real question comes, is he now observing fiscal policy and somewhat challenging it? Inflation runs hot for longer than we expect. But Steve points out 30 percent of the jobs we lost in March and April of last year haven't come back. And guess what? I don't think they're coming back. And if they don't come back, the chairman is in a very difficult spot because he then has to rely on fiscal policy to make up that difference. That's very challenging for him. Yeah. Steph, what do you make of the activity today in the market? The fact that the statement comes out, stocks start to rip a little bit. We hit new highs across the board and now you've given it all up. You barely holding on to green from the three major averages. I mean, the NAS- and actually, the Nasdaq is still is still negative by some nine points or so. Yeah, I mean, this market is a bit confused, Scott, myself included, by the way, um, because we're kind of trying to figure out uh, where is growth? Are we at peak growth? Um, or can we uh, can we grow above trend? Is inflation transitory? What does even transitory mean for how long? As you just pointed out, is it three months? Is it six months? Is it a year? Supply chains are not going to be corrected overnight. And I think it's going to take a lot longer. Just listen to what Micron said. It's going to be years before the supply chain actually gets better. So so I get it. There are parts of the inflation story that are transitory, commodities for certain. But I do think that wages and shelter increases now as the moratoriums are lifted. That is something to watch. And so we have to wait and see. You're right. And again, I don't know what that time frame is, but I still believe very, very strongly that we are going to continue to see solid economic growth because we have a lot of stimulus in the system. The consumer is doing just fine in terms of savings rates, home prices, wages, confidence, and manufacturing inventories are at five-year lows. And ISMs are comfortably above 50. They're in the 60s. So that's actually very positive. And then one last thing, new orders, which are a leading economic indicator for earnings and CapEx, 
that's been above 60 for 12 straight months. You add all this together. I don't know. So I don't see how you can't see some parts of inflation. And when I see a headline number of CPI at 5.4 percent annualized and PPI at 7.3 percent, I just kind of scratch my head. I do think Powell is being a bit stubborn at this point. All they have to do is is talk about tapering. That's all they have to do. And then people will get confident that Powell and team are on the ball. Right now, we're kind of just scratching our heads. And I think the market is confused, myself included. Steph, I, I just want to offer maybe the market is confident. Maybe the idea is out there. That, hey, if this inflation comes along, and I'm just throwing this out there, but, you know, how do you trade at 137 on the 10-year? Of course, there's a lot of Fed purchases in there, but the market seems able to go up and down. How do you trade at 137 on the 10-year when you have inflation above 5%? Well, you got to believe somewhere in your heart of hearts, is, uh, the market, if you're the market, that the Fed is able to control inflation and will control inflation over time. I wonder if that's something that underlies the trade over the last but what do you make, though, Steve, of the fact that, you know, you've got a seasoned investor like Stephanie Link saying that she's a little confused. You've got Larry Fink, who runs the, the biggest asset management company on planet Earth with all of the assets that they have under management. You've got Paul Tudor Jones, Mnuchin, who used to be in the White House, all suggesting that maybe the Fed is looking at the wrong thing when it suggests that inflation is, in fact, transitory. But yet the Fed is staying its course, that Powell is not willing to move off of his view in any way, shape or form, even with a slight out, as you put it earlier in our conversation. The, the only one that bug, bugs me about being confused is Stephanie Link, because she is always like straight ahead <laughs> with what she believes and doesn't hold back at all. So when Stephanie's confused, that's when you should really panic. No, I, I really think that uh, this is a close call, Scott. You said it earlier. It's a difficult call. Uh, uh, Powell has his ideas here that they're going to not have a taper tantrum. That's very important. Uh, they're going to reduce uh, in, a, in a modest way. I think personally, I kind of joined the Larry Fink camp of things. I think the Fed ought to have eased back a while ago on its asset purchases and taken account for the fiscal stimulus. But if the inflation proves temporary, then the market then Powell will have ended up being right and he will not have reduced stimulus earlier than he needed to. So I think he's got a few more months to play with. Um, and I think what Stephanie has to do, and she's always done this, is you can't buy stocks in this environment. You have to buy individual stocks because I think the story is some companies will do well in the face of higher prices and some will do poorly. You can't just say stocks are good in higher inflation or stocks are bad. Some stocks are going to perform differently from others. No, your, your point's very well hey, taken, Steve. Steve. No, you know, it's, uh, Steph, for, forgive me. I've got, I want to go to Carrie. Uh, I would like to hear from you, Carrie, okay. before I do have to go to the hearing. Bear in mind, I, I may have to interrupt you mid-sentence. Uh, so what do you think about what Steve's talking about here, about the selective nature of what you have to do yeah. right now in the market? Yeah, I mean, I agree with that. You know, on the surface, the market acts as if it's all in with Powell. But I think below the surface, it doesn't. If you look at how narrow the market has become, just quickly show that table from Vinny. The market for the last uh, year to date, 50 percent of the S&P names are ahead of the S&P. In the last month, it's 29 percent. Three months ago, it was 70 percent. So the market has less faith in the ability to grow at the rate of, you know, 5%, 6%, 7% sustainably, and it's focusing less on the broader market and more on the digital players, the big tech names, the same names that drove the market 
through the pandemic because they've got some inflation protection. They don't need a lot of reopening. They have sustainable growth. They've got tons of cash. They already pay high labor costs. So it's not as if they're going to be under some big crunch because of inflation. That's why Apple, Microsoft and Amazon are at all time highs. And names like PayPal and Netflix have been moving a lot higher. CRM, you know, that's what's been driving the market. And that's not a big belief that inflation is under control or the economy is going to keep growing at the rate we were thinking a few months ago. Steph, I'll give you the ball back again with a caveat. I may have to take it. For me? Oh, um, so I was just going to ask Steve, in terms of inflation, how do you not think that wages aren't uh, sticky? I mean, it, they're going up, right? And you hear it from companies, but you also see it in the average hourly earnings. And then you got jolts at 9.2 million, and you've got the economist at jolts saying that wages are going up because people can't get people into their companies and into their stores and restaurants and all of that. And then I really do worry about this shelter increases that we're just going to begin to see rise as moratoriums get lifted. So those two pieces of of inflation, I think, are not as transitory. All the other stuff we're talking about is transitory, whatever that even means in terms of the time frame. So, so what do you think about wages and shelter increases? I think they're all right there. They're all they're all definitely happening. They're all pushing up potentially inflation. But Steph, I, I, maybe think about this like a game of musical chairs. You know, everybody got up and had to run around the chairs during the pandemic, and now the music stopped and they have to sit down again. Um, and, and, and there's going to be a higher price for each seat now uh, in some places because uh, people have been displaced. It doesn't mean that every time they get up and run around, there's going to be higher wages. There's, a, I think, a one-time reset here on the wage rates. I don't think they go up infinitely. I think there's a one-time reset on housing. Um, and, and that's really what the Fed is looking at. Not that inflation is 5% this month and not even that it goes back down to where it was. Uh, in terms of the price index, but that the rate begins to fall. That's what the Fed is looking at, that you don't go five, six, seven, but you go five, four, three, two, one when it comes to the inflation rate. It doesn't have to go back down. It just has to stop increasing at a faster rate. And then the Fed will feel like it's correct that the, the inflation was transitory. What's so interesting, too, Steve, is, is the bond market is really helping the Fed chairman out here. The fact that rates are at 136 on, on the 10-year, you know, maybe it'd be a different story if the, the bond market was screaming 175 on, on the 10-year as it was, uh, or even higher, suggesting that, you know, there's a policy error on the horizon that the Fed chair doesn't know what he's talking about, that inflation is going to be more persistent and last for much longer than he thinks. But in fact, it's not. And you alluded to this earlier. The bond market itself is giving the Fed chair the benefit right now. Yeah. Uh, and, and by the way, Scott, I prepared a Fed probability chart. I don't know if they have it in the back there, but the, the market's given the Fed a lot of leeway on rates. You know, if you look at the probabilities, you're a year out till you get the 50 percent probability of the first quarter point rate hike uh, in the fall of 2022. That really is extraordinary freedom from the markets. And look, you're right, Scott. There's three pillars here of Fed policy that you want to look at. The first is the data. The Fed thinks the data is mixed. You have high inflation, but you have the labor market underperforming. The second one is the market. The market is giving the Fed leeway to, to uh, promulgate these policies. And the third one we're going to get in a few minutes is the political backdrop. The Fed does not make policy in a vacuum. So we'll see how much pressure the Federal Reserve chair gets when it comes to inflation and the Fed's policy. I should also let all of you know. Uh, a reminder that tomorrow we're going to be speaking exclusively with Double Line CEO Jeffrey Gundlach, 
who you know is going to have reaction to what the Fed is doing, yeah. what the chairman himself is saying uh, today, and just where we are in the market. Remember, it was at the very beginning of the year when Mr. Gundlach was last with us and suggested that the market was trading at exceptionally high valuation. Uh, S&P's up 15% since then. So you can only wonder what he might be thinking now and what his reaction to Jay Powell will be. Here's the Fed chair. Old Dominion Freight Line was built on keeping promises. With an industry-leading on-time delivery record and low claims rate, we keep promises better than any other LTL freight carrier because we treat every shipment like it's our most important one. Visit odfl.com to learn more. B2B selling is tougher than ever, and we feel your pain. If you're struggling to close deals, consider giving LinkedIn Sales Navigator a shot. This sales intelligence platform helps professionals like you engage high-value customers, drive higher revenue, and increase sales performance. Sales Navigator also guides you in targeting the right buyers, highlights key signals such as job changes or which accounts you should prioritize, and uncovers hidden hot prospects so you can find those buyers that are most likely to convert. Fueled by LinkedIn's 1 billion member platform, Sales Navigator gives you the most up-to-date first-party data, enabling you to unlock conversations with the people that matter. Right now, you can try LinkedIn Sales Navigator and get a 60-day free trial at linkedin.com slash halftime report. That is linkedin.com slash halftime report for a 60-day free trial. Let LinkedIn Sales Navigator help you sell like a superstar today. Just go to linkedin.com slash halftime report and get started. Monetary Policy Report. At the Fed, we're strongly committed to achieving the monetary policy goals that Congress has given us, maximum employment and price stability. We pursue these goals based solely on data and objective analysis, and we are committed to doing so in a clear and transparent manner. Today, I will review the current economic situation before turning to monetary policy. Over the first half of 2021, ongoing vaccinations have led to a reopening of the economy and strong economic growth supported by accommodative monetary and fiscal policy. Real gross domestic product this year appears to be on track to post its fastest increase in decades. Household spending is rising at an especially rapid pace, boosted by strong fiscal support, accommodative financial conditions, and the reopening of the economy. Housing demand remains very strong, and overall business investment is increasing at a solid pace. As described in our monetary policy report, Supply constraints have been restraining activity in some industries, most notably in the motor vehicle industry, where the worldwide shortage of semiconductors has sharply curtailed production so far this year. Conditions in the labor market have continued to improve, but there is still a long way to go. Labor demand appears to be very strong. Job openings are at a record high, hiring is robust, and many workers are leaving their current jobs to search for better ones. Indeed, employers added 1.7 million workers from April through June. However, the unemployment rate remained elevated in June at 5.9%, and this figure understates the shortfall in employment, particularly as participation in the labor market has not moved up from the low rates that have prevailed for most of the last year. Job gains should be strong in coming months as public health conditions continue to improve and as some of the other pandemic-related factors currently weighing them down diminish. As discussed in the monetary policy report, the pandemic-induced declines in employment last year were largest for workers with lower wages and for African Americans and Hispanics. Despite substantial improvements for all racial and ethnic groups, the hardest-hit groups still have the most ground left to gain, to regain. 
Inflation has increased notably and will likely remain elevated in coming months before moderating. Inflation is being temporarily boosted by base effects as the sharp pandemic-related price increases from last spring drop out of the 12-month calculation. In addition, strong demand in sectors where production bottlenecks or other supply constraints have, have limited production has led to especially rapid price increases for some goods and services, which should partially reverse as the effects of the bottlenecks unwind. Prices for services uh, that were hard hit by the pandemic have also jumped in recent months as demand for these services has surged with the reopening of the economy. To avoid sustained periods of unusually low or high inflation, the FOMC monetary policy framework seeks longer-term inflation expectations that are well anchored at 2%, the committee's longer-run inflation objective. Measures of longer-term inflation expectations have moved up from their pandemic lows and are in a range that is broadly consistent with the FOMC's longer-run inflation goal. Two boxes in the July Monetary Policy Report discuss recent developments in inflation and inflation expectations. Sustainably achieving maximum employment and price stability depends on a stable financial system, and we continue to monitor vulnerabilities vulnerabilities here. While asset valuations have generally risen with improving fundamentals, as well as increased investor risk appetite, holding balance sheets, household balance sheets are on average quite strong. Business leverage has been declining from high levels, and the institutions at the core of the financial system remain resilient. Turning to monetary policy, at our June meeting, the FOMC kept the federal funds rate near zero and maintained the pace of our asset purchases. These measures, along with our strong guidance on interest rates and on our balance sheet, will ensure that monetary policy will continue to deliver powerful support to the economy until the recovery is complete. We continue to expect that it will be appropriate to maintain the current target range for the federal funds rate until labor market conditions have reached levels consistent with the committee's assessment of maximum employment and inflation has risen to 2% and is on track to moderately exceed 2% for some time. As the committee reiterated in our June policy statement, with inflation having run persistently below 2%, we will aim to achieve inflation moderately above 2% for some time so that inflation averages 2% over time and longer-term inflation expectations remain well anchored at 2%. As always, in assessing the appropriate stance of policy, we will continue to monitor the implications of incoming information for the economic outlook and would be prepared to adjust the stance of monetary policy as appropriate if we saw signs that the path of inflation or longer-term inflation expectations were moving materially and persistently beyond levels consistent with our goal. In addition, we're continuing to increase our holdings of Treasury Securities and Agency MBS, at least at their current pace, until substantial further progress has been made toward our maximum employment and price stability goals. These purchases have materially eased financial conditions and are providing substantial support for the economy. At our June meeting, the committee discussed the economy's progress toward our goals since we adopted our asset purchase guidance last December. While reaching the standard of substantial further progress is still a ways off, participants expect that progress will continue, and we will continue these discussions in coming meetings. As we've said, we'll provide advance notice before announcing any decision to make changes to our purchases. To wrap up, we understand that our actions affect communities, families, and businesses across the country. Everything we do is in service to our public mission. The resumption of our Fed Listens initiative will further strengthen our ongoing efforts to learn from a broad range of groups about how they are recovering from the economic hardships brought on by the pandemic. 
We at the Federal Reserve will do everything we can to support the recovery and foster progress toward our goals of maximum employment and stable prices. Thank you. I will look forward to our discussion. Uh, thank you very much, uh, Chairman Powell. And I'd like to clarify that the end time for this hearing is 3 o'clock Pacific time and 12 p.m. Eastern time. So thank you very much. And at this time, I would now like to recognize myself for five minutes for questions. Chair Powell, I want to understand some of the data behind the recent inflation figures, specifically as it relates to housing and home prices. According to the monetary policies report we're discussing today, quote, new construction, home sales, and residential improvements have all been well above pre-pandemic levels, and demand has outpaced supply as construction has been limited by material shortages and sales have been constrained by low inventories, unquote. So demand for housing clearly outweighs the supply of housing. Chair Powell, you said that this is a problem for first-time home buyers for sure. Can you elaborate on what you meant by that? Chair Powell, will you unmute? I'm sorry, Madam Chair. Uh, so housing prices are moving up across the country at a high rate. And um, I suppose the good, the good news is that this is not driven by the kind of reckless, irresponsible lending that led to the housing bubble uh, that led to the last financial crisis. Uh, those kinds of things are, are not happening, at least so far. Nonetheless, housing prices are moving up. And of course, that makes it more difficult for entry-level buyers to get into the housing market. So th that, is, that is a concern. Uh, I, I, will, I will also point out, though, that um, a number of things are driving up housing prices. Certainly low rates are part of that. There are also changes in preference. People have uh, wanted to move out of cities uh, because of COVID into uh, surrounding areas. So single-family fam housing demand has been quite high. In addition, prices have been driven up by material shortages and things like that, which we would hope would be alleviated. Okay, so uh, Chairman Powell, a lack of supply and constraints around housing stock are a factor in the recent increase in housing costs. If the Fed were to raise interest rates, what do you project the impact would be on addressing housing supply challenges? Well, it wouldn't have any effect on it, on the supply side, as, as I think you're suggesting. Um, you know, uh, there are there are limitations around uh, the availability of some raw materials and of labor and of zoning and things like that. And nothing we can do can really affect that. Uh, it, it is true that that uh, interest rates do are one factor that's that's uh, supporting demand. But we really can't do much about the supply side. Conversely, do you expect that increasing housing supply would help alleviate inflation? I think housing. Sure, I, th I do think that that. Uh, uh, more housing supply, uh, in, if demand were to remain constant, would certainly uh, would certainly imply that prices would uh, would stop going up uh, as much as they have been. The Great Recession was long, uh, slow, and inequitable in part because fiscal support provided by Congress was insufficient, and we left too much up to the Fed to stimulate the economy through low interest rates. I believe strongly that we cannot repeat that mistake. And as I look around at what is causing surging prices, 
I see a lot of places where more investment will help with long-term economic growth, especially more housing. Congress and the Biden administration have a job to do right now. It is for this reason I'm reintroducing my Housing is Infrastructure Act this week to ensure that Congress finally makes long overdue investments in the housing market. This bill would provide a historic investment of more than $600 billion to ensure that affordable housing is available all across the country. And so, um, as you know, I'm focused um, very much on housing and I understand uh, that there's a great need for affordable housing. As you know, homelessness is just uh, increasing all over this country. And uh, some cities have given up on even trying to control uh, the camps that are popping up on sidewalks and under bridges. And so how important do you think uh, housing is, investment in housing is to this economy? That the housing industry is a is a big one, and uh, the the problem of affordable housing is a big one too. Albeit it's one outside of the uh, largely outside of the ambit of the Fed's uh, responsibilities, but uh, certainly a very important issue. And I, I think the as you point out, the rise in homelessness in the face of a very strong recovery is is actually evidence of the the une- unevenness of the recovery. So, uh, which is something we try to keep in mind as well. Well, thank you very much. Uh, I now will call on uh, the ranking member for five minutes for questions. Uh, Chair Powell. Mr. McKinley. Um, Chair Powell, um, thank you for being back. Uh, we have a lot of debate about monetary policy, but fiscal policy is also an important uh, discussion. Uh, Chair Powell, when Congress, and I, and I recognize Chair Powell, uh, you have say over monetary policy, but not fiscal policy. This is the responsibility of Congress. Um, but Chair Powell, when Congress enacts new spending, does the Fed incorporate that new spending into its economic projections? Yes, we do. Of course, we don't, as you know, we don't comment on or, or, or try in any way to play a role in fiscal policy, in particular fiscal policies. But yes, we will take, we take it as an, as a, an external factor that we would that we would factor into our our models and into our assessment of the economy. Okay, so that spending impacts the course of Fed's decision making, um, and the Fed uh, will follow in essence, right? You, you have no say over it, but you will incorporate that into your decision making. Uh, will adding another four and a half trillion dollars um, uh, in new spending impact the Fed's decision making? So I should be clear, it's one of many factors that we consider. And, you know, our, so our focus is on maximum employment and price stability. So we would we would tend to look. One thing would be uh, you, would, you would want to know how much of it's paid for and that kind of thing. But sort of the net deficit spending would enter into anybody's projections, really, of the economy and, and ultimately into projections of of the labor market and of inflation over time. Uh, it's hard to say exactly how without without knowing a lot of the details, because it, it also depends. It matters what, what money is spent on and over what period of time and that sort of thing. Sure. sure. So um, the spend rate matters, but fiscal policy, both tax and spend policy impacts the Fed's decision making. Uh, so for those uh, in Congress that are saying that uh, irresponsible spending won't impact the Fed's decision making and won't impact our economy long term, 
um, it's, certainly is not in keeping with how these decisions are made. Uh, so I want to switch subjects a little bit. Um, Chair Powell, as, um, as you know, there's been a, a great interest in central bank digital currencies. Uh, many countries like China in particular are focused on establishing a CBDC. Uh, you indicated this uh, earlier this year, the Fed would study and issue a white paper on the subject. Uh, what is the status of that report? We expect to publish a report um, around, um, could be early September, or plus or minus, right in, in that uh, time frame. And the, uh, the status of it is we're working hard on it right now. Uh, but let me tell you what it, what it is, really. We're going to address digital payments broadly. So that means stable coins. It means, it means crypto assets. It means a CBDC. That whole group of, at, of, of issues and, and payment mechanisms uh, which we think are uh, are really at a critical uh, point in terms of the appropriate regulation, and, and in the case of a CBDC, a central bank digital currency, you know, laying out really questions for the public to respond to about what you know what good it can do, what what the costs and benefits of it would be. We want it. We want to have begin really uh, a major public consultation across many different groups, including Congress, of course, uh, on on a CBDC and also on stable coins and, and crypto. But uh, so you so there are certainly advantages uh, to a central bank digital currency or, or a fastened a faster payment system, uh, but there are certainly risks. Is that that's the case, right? Um, this is not a riskless proposition. It's a pretty bold proposition for for uh, the Federal Reserve, is it not? Yes, and you know, we'll lay out the possible potential benefits. We'll put those out on paper, and also you know, the potential risks that, that are undertaken. And, 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 you know, I think those have been written up in, in many forums around the world. And, and I think they're both are real. And, um, you know, it really depends. A lot depends on the U.S. institutional context and on why we would need a, a central bank digital currency and how you weigh those costs and benefits. So that's really the nature of the exercise. And, and so stable coins certainly have uh, some advantages in terms of a uh, faster payment system and and have some of the attributes of uh, CBDC, but there are some risks uh, with uh, stable coins right now. Are there not? Are there concerns you have about stable coins? Yeah, I think the issue stable coins are a lot like money market funds or bank deposits or a narrow bank, depending on the terms of them and that kind of thing. But without the regulation, and I, I think we we have a tradition in this country uh, where you know where where the public's money is held in what is supposed to be a very safe asset. We have a pretty strong regulatory framework around bank deposits, for example, or money market funds. That doesn't exist, really, for stable coins. And if they're going to be a significant part of the payments uh, uh, universe, which we don't think crypto assets will be, but stable coins might be, then we need an appropriate regulatory framework, which, frankly, we don't have. Thank you. Thank you very much. Clarification. This hearing will end 3 p.m. Eastern time. p.m. <laughs> Pacific time. Why didn't somebody say something? Well, okay. That's a relief for all of us. I'm uh, relieved. Okay. Okay. Well, yeah, we, 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 don't, yes. we don't like interrupting our chairwoman. That's why we, we knew you were figuring it Excuse out. Excuse me, the gentlewoman from New York. Thank you, Ms. Maloney, who is also the chair of the House Committee on Oversight and Reform, is now recognized for five minutes. Well, thank you for that correction. Uh, You're Chair welcome. Powell. <laughs> Chair Powell, it's very good to see you again. 
Uh, last month, when you testified before the Select Subcommittee on Coronavirus and the Crisis, you and I discussed the current economic recovery, and I ex- expressed concern, along with other members, about prematurely cutting off this recovery by raising interest rates too soon. Uh, I want to touch on a related topic today, and that's the Fed's asset uh, purchases. As you know, the Fed is currently supporting the economy by purchasing $120 billion a month in treasuries and mortgage securities, and the Fed has said that it will continue these purchases until, quote, substantial further progress has been made toward the committee's maximum employment and price stability goals, end quote. The minutes from last month's Fed's meeting stated that the Fed is continuing its asset purchases because uh, participants generally did not believe that the goal of, quote, substantial for for the progress has been made yet. And I I agree. I I think it's far too early for the Fed to start tapering its asset purchases and pulling back on its support for the economy. So, Chairman Powell, would you please elaborate on what you believe, quote, substantial further progress, end quote, looks like? What do you need to see happen before you will support tapering the Fed's asset purchases? So um, we'll know, I would say this, uh, we, we didn't try to elute to write down a particular set of numbers that would capture what we mean by that. And it, it would have been uh, complicated and not particularly worthwhile. So, so we thought, so we, we said substantial further progress, which is similar to what we did during the recovery of the global financial from the global financial crisis years ago. We had a similar kind of uh, set of words for when we would taper asset purchases. So the thing is, um, it's, it's very difficult to be precise about it because with, with, with maximum employment, there are no three or four or five or six um, metrics that you could point to. It really is a very broad range of things, including wages, unemployment, levels of employment, participation, all those things. So, so we just said substantial further progress. And we also said that we would provide advance, advance notice you know, well in advance of actually tapering so that understanding that this is somewhat of a discretionary, uh, discretionary test and that we don't want to surprise markets or the public. So we will provide lots of notice as we go forward on that. And we, by the way, we're, we have another FOMC meeting uh, in a couple of weeks from today, and we'll have another round of, of uh, discussions on this very topic. Great. Great. Thank you. Chair Powell, in May, President Biden took action through an executive order to address the serious threat that the climate crisis poses to our economy. And we are seeing numerous examples of that changing climate and extreme weather events that result from this threat. We saw extreme heat across the Pacific Northwest, which will have cascading effects on on the U.S. economy. And part of that executive order was uh, at tasking Secretary Yellen with assessing climate-related financial risks through FSOC, of which the Fed is a member. And I know the Fed presented on climate risks during the first FSOC meeting of this year. Uh, Can you provide us with an update on the Fed's current work with FSOC on this topic and the Fed's broader work to address climate change in our financial system, particularly at these risks, how these risks can impact our broader economy through supply chain disruptions uh, or disruptions to massive industries such as uh, agriculture? 
Sure, I'd be glad to. So the Fed's work on uh, climate change really exists as part of our our pre-existing mandates for supervising financial institutions and for the overall stability of the financial system. So uh, as far as individual financial institutions are concerned, um, as supervisors, we want them to be aware of and capable of managing and understanding all of the risks that they run, including the risks to their business activities and business model from climate change. So we're in the beginning stages of working uh, up a program that will that will uh, engage with with the financial institutions and make sure that that happens. Uh, on on financial system more broadly, uh, we we have a, 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 an overlapping effort that looks carefully at the broader financial system and asks. How will uh, how will climate change affect financial markets and other financial institutions that are not banks, for example, insurance companies and many others like that, asset managers? So those are really two two efforts that we're working on, and that's what we reported on to the FSOC. Time has expired. Thank you very much. I yield back. Thank you. What does it mean to be rich? Is it having more stories to share or time to give? Is it being able to keep your loved ones close or travel somewhere far away? At Edward Jones, we believe the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Your dedicated financial advisor will take a comprehensive approach to your financial strategy to help support what truly matters to you. EdwardJones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. The woman from Missouri, Ms. Wagner, is now recognized for five minutes. I uh, thank you, Madam Chairwoman and Chairman Powell. Thank you for being here with us again today. You and I have discussed at length my very grave concerns with higher inflation and the increased costs that consumers and businesses are expressing or experiencing, pardon me, today. In February, you appeared before this committee and reiterated that the price spikes are only temporary uh, and that they will decrease in time and inflation will move towards your goal of 2%. I can tell you that the families and businesses that I represent in Missouri's 2nd Congressional District aren't feeling that these price spikes are very temporary. I am concerned with the most recent consumer price index data showing price increases that are much higher than expectations. Housing costs costs are, as we've discussed here, are skyrocketing. Food costs are higher. Electricity and gas prices are up. Even travel and hospitality costs have seen a, a, a great increase. I understand that some of these increases are due to supply chain disruptions and labor shortages, but to have prices across the board consistently higher than they were forecasted to be is deeply troubling as we look toward a strong economic growth for the rest of the year uh, and, and beyond as we pull out of this pandemic. Um, Chairman Powell, is it the Fed's policy or the Biden administration's policy that is, you know, that's surrounded with massive spending that is causing consumer prices to skyrocket? I can't, I can't really address that. I can, I can tell you why I think we're having this inflation that we're having now. Um, so what, what's really happening is, first of all, you're right. The incoming inflation data have been higher than expected and hoped for, but they're actually still consistent with, with what we've been talking about. The, the, the very high inflation readings are coming from a, a small group 
of goods and services that are directly tied to the reopening of the economy. It's it's new new cars, used cars, rental cars, hotel rooms, air you know airplane tickets, things that we understand. Yes, how to but, with, all, with all due respect, Chairman Powell, I mean it's 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 housing, it's appliances, it's food prices, it's electricity, it's gas. Tell me, to what extent is the Federal Reserve willing to see consumer prices increase before intervention is necessary? Well, so we are monitoring the situation very carefully, and uh, we are committed to price stability. And if we if we were to see that inflation were remaining high and remaining materially higher above our target for a period of time, and that it was threatening to uh, uproot inflation expectations and uh, create a risk of, of, of a longer period of inflation, then we would absolutely change our policy as appropriate. Well, unemployment is still well above the 3.5% figure it reached uh, prior to the pandemic, and the labor force participation rate remains lower than in February of 2020. Now, a lot of that is because uh, the administration is, is, is still, frankly, paying people not to work, um, while job openings remain high at 9.2 million. In the uh, FOMC minutes from June, some participants believed that the unemployment rate of 3.5% um, that the previous administration achieved is not feasible. Chairman Powell, with 9.2 million job openings and many employers raising wages and offering hiring bonuses, etc., what is causing some members of the FOMC to believe a 3.5% unemployment rate is not achievable? I, I don't know that anyone said that. I didn't hear anyone say that that, that 3.5% unemployment it's, it's is... It's in the minutes. It's in no, the it's minutes not. from June. No, it's not. It's, it must be something else. It must be something that says... Um, uh, you might say that about, about labor force participation, for example, or, or employment to population. But I, I don't I don't think I, I didn't hear anybody uh, say that we couldn't get back to three and a half percent unemployment. In any case, I don't believe that. Let me just say that I don't believe that. I, I, I think it's a long road back. It took us quite a long. It took us eight years of an expansion to get to three and a half percent. But I think there's every reason to think that we can get get back to that level. With a vaccine readily available in small businesses with unfilled positions, what do you believe is causing the unemployment rate to remain steadily above 3.5 percent? Well, so I think you're right uh, that the demand for labor is very, very high. All-time record job openings, and there are also significant numbers of unemployed people. The market doesn't seem to clear, and I, th I think uh, some factors are weighing on labor supply, people going back to work. We think that those factors, though, such as school reopenings and, and perhaps also unemployment insurance, we think that those things will pass. And we do think that as a result, there'll be very strong job creation. My, uh, thank, thank you, Chairman Powell. My time's expired and I yield back. The gentleman from New York, Mr. Meeks, who is also the chair of the House Committee on Foreign Affairs, is now recognized for five minutes. Thank you, Madam Speaker. And welcome back, Chairman Powell. Now, as you know, the Biden administration recently issued an executive order promoting competition in the American economy and encouraging the attorney general in consultation with the primary federal banking agencies to update existing guidelines on bank mergers, provide more robust scrutiny on these transactions. And I, I support this executive order, considering the impact that bank consolidation can have on communities of color. Now, compliance with the Community Reinvestment Act 
is an important measure that the DOJ and the feds consider during the bank merger review process. And as you know, I've publicly supported the feds direction in modernizing CRA regulations so that things like the bank merger review process can adequately reflect the economic needs of today. So can you please explain how the Fed plans to coordinate with the DOJ in light of the bank merger executive order? And will the Fed's CRA reform efforts and the DOJ's, DOJ's bank merger updates happen in silos or in tandem? Thank you. So we actually uh, we, we coordinate pretty closely uh, with justice, with the Department of Justice over the years. Uh, on bank antitrust standards. Uh, we, we, we each look at, uh, at, at each merger. And so we understand each other. And, um, you know, we would look forward to, to the extent justice, I think, under the, under the executive order is encouraged to take a fresh look at bank merger standards. We would, of course, uh, closely coordinate and try to understand what's going on. We haven't made any decision to change our, our merger standards, but we would certainly, um, monitor that carefully and, and, uh, uh, and act appropriately. I don't, again, I can't, pre, I can't, you know, presume to know what we, what will, what will happen out of this. Uh, but it's a process that we'll go through in coordination with justice. And well, hopefully, you know, the coordination is important. To, I believe to act in tandem so that there's not several different CRA rules and regulations that comes out uh, as we've talked about with the OCC and others. So uh, I appreciate the Fed uh, making sure that there's some continuity. Uh, in that regard, and working in tandem. Uh, so also, you know, the pandemic has uh, really disrupted, I believe, uh, the housing market, as it was indicated by, by, by the chairwoman. And I look at the disproportionate number of homeowners, particularly in my district, of black and brown homeowners uh, relative to New York City at large. Now, in the pandemic's early days, the Fed rightfully intervened and purchased uh, mortgage-backed securities in the billions, which help keep the interest rates low, I understand. However, we've also experienced a rise now in housing prices, with some attribute to the Fed's asset purchases. Now, although others cite supply chain uh, challenges, so I understand there's a debate at the Fed as to how quickly it should taper its MBS purchases, but what are some of the economic factors you are considering as you weigh both sides of this argument? So housing prices are going up because of both demand and supply reasons. And you, you touched on them, Congressman. Uh, on the supply side, it is, it is, you know, prices of raw materials and, and lack of labor, you know, labor, labor costs, uh, zoning difficulties, all those things. So it's not just a demand story. On the demand side, uh, rates are definitely uh, low interest rates are certainly uh, making mortgages uh, cheaper and therefore supporting uh, prices in housing. You know, that's certainly a factor. There are other factors, too changing preferences. People are, uh, household balance sheets are very strong right now because uh, people were, were kind of forced to save it because they couldn't, they couldn't go on trips. They couldn't go to restaurants for a year. So there are big amounts of savings on people's balance sheets. So all of that goes into demand for housing. Um, sorry, then your, your question on that was what? Uh, so what are some of the economic factors uh, that you are considering uh, you know, and, and that argument is both. Oh, on, on mortgage-backed securities. So on, on, on mortgage-backed securities um, in particular, so interest rates, our, our low interest rates and treasury purchases and MBS all go into creating a low interest rate environment and go into mortgage rates. 
mortgage the mortgage backed securities purchases really work a lot like treasury purchases. They 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 don't they aren't they aren't especially important in what's happening without with housing prices. They 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 are nonetheless they 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 clearly are a factor among factors. So this is one of the things that we'll be considering as we go through this process of evaluating when to taper and in what form, what will be the composition of of asset purchases going forward. Those are all issues that we'll be we'll be discussing at this next meeting in a couple of weeks. Thank you, Thank you very much. The gentleman from Indiana, Mr. Hollingsworth, is now recognized for five minutes. Well, good afternoon, Chairman Powell. Appreciate you being here and certainly appreciate you answering our questions. I know this remains a tricky time in the recovery and our collective understanding about the Fed's effort and reasoning here is very important. I have a long preamble that I hope ends at a question, so take a little bit of a journey with me. Uh, First and foremost, I want you to know I'm in no way besmirching the good work the Fed has done over the last year. The extraordinary economic cessation necessitated extreme action, and you took that action with vigor. I'm thankful for that, and my view on that is unchanged. Second, my question is not meant to imply that you need a hawkish stance. I think we can all agree that monetary policy is very accommodative at present, perhaps at the furthest end of the accommodative side of the spectrum, as is conceivable. I'm questioning merely the degree of accommodative stance, not asking to return to a restrictive side of the spectrum. Third, I have on many occasions endorsed your new symmetrical approach to inflation target. I believe this is exactly the right answer. My question today is not tied to recent inflation numbers, nor would I prognosticate about whether it's transitory or not, whether it's a monetary phenomenon, a demand phenomenon, nor the magnitude of what it may reach. But here's the crux of my question. I think there's a lot of data out in the economy showing that there it is a wash in liquidity. A panoply of statistics indicate the tremendous slash unprecedented increase in liquidity over recent years. In recent weeks alone, you've raised the reverse repo rate to 0.05%, and the uptake on that product has been tremendous, which in and of itself is a reaction to money markets being overwhelmed with liquidity, which in and of itself is a reaction to bank deposits being overwhelmed. Yet the ultra, ultra accommodative stance by the Fed continues. And when asked about this over the last few months, and I think you indicated this in your earlier testimony, I've heard you say that there needs necessary further healing in the labor market for that ultra, ultra accommodative stance to change. I agree with this. There's much room to go. But what I don't understand about that answer is that a cornucopia of evidence suggests that challenges in the labor market are not related to monetary policy and frankly aren't susceptible to monetary policy's aid. The Fed, and no indictment on the Fed, monetary policy writ large isn't the right vehicle and doesn't have the right tools to resolve skills mismatch, to resolve work-no-work incentive balancing, and to resolve geographic mismatch. As you said earlier, there isn't a lack of demand in the jobs market. So I guess getting to the specifics of my question, I believe the Fed is distorting significantly the financial economy for very little, if any, maybe marginal impact on the real economy. To couch specifically inside your mandate, are you jeopardizing long-term full employment and price stability by virtue of extreme monetary policy and picking up very little short-term benefit in full employment? I wondered if you might talk about your reasoning and your colleagues' reasoning uh, for remaining and retaining that extreme accommodative stance and using labor market as justification despite significant evidence indicating that the labor market needs are not monetary policy-related. I think you're muted. Sorry. I did it again. Uh, So uh, I would just say this. So uh, 
Policy is highly accommodative. That is correct. Uh, we're a long way from full employment. We, we have, uh, as you know, 5.9% uh, uh, unemployment, and the true number is actually substantially above that. Uh, so we've got a ways to go. Um, and uh, we, we see everything that you see, but I guess what we see is uh, that our test for tapering asset purchases is an appropriate one, and we're making progress toward that. So we are, in fact, considering... Uh, I guess just to take that, just to needle into that for a second, are we are making progress? I do not believe that progress is a result of that asset for monthly asset purchases, and I think I've seen significant evidence that indicates that monetary policy isn't making an impact on that. Other factors are making an impact on that, and I wonder whether the financial distortion that is occurring and is it by its nature monetary policy isn't causing long term problems for very little short term gain. Yeah, no, I, so that's, I guess that's where I would differ is, is I, I do think monetary policy is, is supporting demand and demand broadly in the economy and the recovery of the weak sectors and all of that. So it, believe, it, it's still appropriate that monetary policy be accommodative, highly accommodative. You believe that the difference between 60 billion and 120 billion or zero billion in person, 120 billion is a material impact on the point at which we will reach full employment? Question mark. I mean, it's hard to say that with any specificity, but yes, I think our overall policy stance is appropriate. And as you know, we are we are very much in the process of walking down the road and asking those those very questions. And first on tapering, but I also think it's you know we're, we're a good ways away from maximum employment. And one of the conditions for lifting interest rates is that we are at labor market conditions that are comparable, or sorry, uh, in the range of of maximum of, uh, of maximum employment. Thank you very much. The gentleman's time has expired. The gentleman from Massachusetts, Mr. Lynch, is now recognized for five minutes. Mr. Lynch? Can you hear me? Now I can. Okay. Thank you, Madam Chair and uh, Chairman Powell. Thank you so much for your willingness to help the committee with its work. Uh, so I was very pleased to hear in your opening remarks. Uh, that the Fed plans uh, an open dialogue with the public and with stakeholders regarding uh, CBDCs and, and, as well as uh, uh, cryptocurrency generally, uh, and and I think that's much needed. And I'm 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 very proud of the fact that the Boston Fed, under the leadership of Eric Rosengren, uh, has been working with MIT in their cryptocurrency lab. Uh, on, on working on this digital dollar for for the United States and for the Fed. Uh, I, I am a little bit worried about the pace, though. Uh, we see, I, I think there's uh, 86 uh, separate central banks that are already engaged in this. Uh, do we uh, do we risk uh, sacrificing the primacy and and the reserve? Currency status by, by, uh, I think some would argue slowness in in response to this, uh, and and does this dialogue that you envision uh, stretch out the timeline for uh, adopting, say, a, a a digital dollar for the U.S. Uh, does it delay that considerably? Um. I would agree. No, actually, I think the opposite. I think this this is the beginning of of, of uh, I would think accelerating that that uh, decision process. 
we have a lot of work left to do on the technical side and on the policy side, but a critical part of it is just the public consultation. But on, on reserve currency, res- the U.S. is the reserve currency. There really isn't an, a, a, a good competitor out there because all the things you need to be the reserve currency, really, the United States has it. We're not in danger of losing it. Uh, certainly not to China, which doesn't have an open capital account, that kind of thing. It, it, it's the kind of status that, as you as you well know, lasts for many, many years. So I'm not concerned about I'm really concerned about getting this right. It does carry risks. It does have benefits. It's it's quite specific to the institutional context of each country. And I want to get it right. We are the reserve currency. You know, it, we have first mover advantage by virtue of, virtue of that. So uh, I think it's way more important to get it right than, is, than it is to do it fast. Yeah, that, that's fair enough. Uh, let me ask you another question. It's a little off topic, but uh, recently uh, China has taken – somewhat uh, uh, hostile uh, action against uh, IPOs being launched in, in the United States, DD, uh, the ride-hailing uh, 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 business in, in, in uh, China uh, is one of the recent examples. Uh, they've offered, the Chinese government has offered several different reasons for wanting uh, these Chinese uh, companies to register in in China versus uh, in the U.S. Uh, they've given, like I say, they've given various reasons for that, the security of data being one of them. Uh, I was wondering if you had, this is probably a better question for Mr. Gensler, but, but I was wondering if you had uh, thoughts on that about what the ultimate uh, reasons were for China taking that action. Yeah, I'm, I would I would pass that to my, my friend, uh, Gary Gensler. I, I think it's not it's right over his uh, home plate there. So for, for him, I mean, I, I'll just say it's important that we have, you know, uh, open capital accounts and open capital markets and global rules that we all abide by. And, uh, but I, I don't know how, uh, how how to address that one because it's really for the SEC. Okay. And lastly, uh, do, you, do you think that uh, – with I have one minute left. Uh, do you think that uh, maybe more uh, swift action – on uh, a digital currency for the Fed, would that have a calming effect on uh, the variety and the number of uh, cryptocurrencies and stable coins that we see uh, coming out? Wouldn't that be a more viable and reliable alternative than having all of these hundreds and perhaps a thousand different uh, cryptocurrencies emerging? I think that may be may be the case, and I think that's one of the arguments that are offered uh, in favor of a, of a digital currency. That particularly, you wouldn't you wouldn't need stable coins, you wouldn't need cryptocurrencies if you had a digital U.S. currency. I think that's one of the stronger arguments in, in its favor. That's great, Madam Chair. I yield back. Thank you. Thank you very much. You've been listening to CNBC's halftime report, the podcast. You can always catch us live weekdays at 12 Eastern, only on CNBC. You seek the key, but first, you must learn the ways of precision, craft, and performance with Acura's all-electric ZDX. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system up to a 313-mile range and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is their most powerful SUV yet. Unlock the energy when you visit Acura.com to order yours today.